All right. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Um, some Sundays are a little longer than other Sundays. This is probably going to be one that's a little longer than usual because of our wonderful presentation, and we praise God for that opportunity to hear everything that you said, our sister Claire. And um, if, if during this sermon you get a little tap on your head, it's because you've fallen asleep, and <laughs> there's no sleeping allowed during the sermon. All right. Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I want to just stop there for a minute. And Michael, if you could get the map up on the, on the overhead here. Uh, we're going to be preaching on the book of Thessalonians from now into the near future. And we're going to uh, give us a little background of the book of Thessalonians and how this church that Paul addresses uh, came to pass. So Paul is on a missionary journey, and he was uh, in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Remember, he was incarcerated. He was beaten, and uh, it ended up the Philippian jailer got saved, and his household got saved. They were baptized, and a church was formed in Philippi. Paul was like he had many different places. He was persecuted, and then he went to, we don't have on the map those two locations, Apollonia, uh, the name of them was uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, which is between these two cities. But Paul goes from Philippi, and as we'll read now, he's going to be in Thessalonica. Just so you get an idea where Thessalonica is on the map here, there's Italy, and here are different places that are, you can see. This is Corinth, Achaia, etc. Okay, getting back to our reading in verse number one, we'll repeat. Now, when they had passed from Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, this was a common outpost for Paul to go in his travels. Remember, he's classified as an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. And you might raise the question, why did Paul go into a Jewish synagogue if he's an apostle to the Gentiles? Well, because he says in the book of Romans, it's to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So the ministry that he had was not strictly confined just to Gentiles, but that was the ultimate body of people that the Lord had assigned to him. And where is he going to find Gentiles that possibly could be God-fearing, who would be willing to sit in a synagogue and to hear the word of God? That would be a great outpost to launch the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as you read through the book of Acts, whenever you do, you'll find that Paul stops at various synagogues in his travels. And here's another example of that. It's his launching pad oftentimes. So Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Remember, Jesus began his ministry in going into the synagogue. He opened up the Scriptures, and he expounded unto them the things concerning himself. Verse 3 says, in explaining, this is Paul, and providing, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That is extremely significant. All Jews and all synagogues would have been looking and anticipating and expecting the Messiah, the anointed one, which is what the word Christ means to be coming. And Paul, out of the scriptures, reasons with them and proves to them that the Christ is Jesus. 
that was extremely significant. Verse 3 again, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the anointed one. That's how the word Christ could be translated, the anointed one, the one that you've been waiting for. Now verse 4 says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, his co-apostle, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul, we have recorded here for three uh, consecutive Sabbaths, Saturdays, met in the synagogue, read the scriptures, and expounded to them about the Christ. And the conclusion of it is given here in verse 4, that some believed, some were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas in the faith, that is in believing, and they, and they did, and as well as other gr- devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. That would be the Gentile people. Verse 5, but the Jews, this is not uncommon again with the Jews uprising against the message of Christianity of Jesus, were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Satan, of Satan, of Caesar, yeah, saying that there is another king, hallelujah, another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What a subject. What a way of classifying what Paul was presenting and Silas to those in the synagogue. That there's another king. Now that would be really, uh, you could say, um, radical. To say there's another king, well, Caesar's the king. King Caesar, he's revered, he's respected. Everybody honors Caesar. But now, Paul and Silas are preaching about another king, one named Jesus, and by doing this, is turning the world, this is how they're saying it, is turning the world upside down. What it's really doing, it's turning believers upside right, and the world is still upside down. Things have been twisted now in the right direction by the gospel. We were once under the authority of another king, but through the gospel, hearing about King Jesus and believing on him, we now get aligned to the one who's truly sitting on the throne, the one to whom we're willing to submit ourselves to and own Jesus Christ as the king of our life. Have you owned Jesus Christ as the king of your life? What a wonderful way of describing Jesus. Not just Lord, not just Savior, but King. I love that expression. King Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's give the King praise. King Jesus. Okay, now, let's go over to Thessalonians. We're going to begin the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. And it might be in your best interest to read the book of Thessalonians on your own over and over again. One pastor encouraged his church to read it every single day for a month. That sounds challenging, but there's only about 80, 79 verses 
in the whole book of Thessalonians. You could probably read it, if you read it nonstop, you probably could read it in less than 10 minutes. But I wouldn't encourage you to read it so fast, but I would encourage you to read the book of Thessalonians. I think you'll get more out of the preaching that way. If you yourself, along with me, can be reading the word together, I think it'll be profitable for all of us. Okay. Verse 1, Paul and, are we back in Acts? Thank you, thank you. I mean Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. This is the only place, by the way, where Paul has three used in the uh, greeting. Paul, Silvanus is the same word or same person as his name Silas. He could take either name. Just like Paul was Saul, Timothy was Timotheus, Silvanus would have been Silas as well. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. What makes Thessalonians unique right off the bat is the way in which Paul addresses them. Now, this is one of Paul's first and early epistles that he's writing. Possibly the very first one would be dated likely around 49 or 50 A.D. approximately. Paul had, uh, had visited there shortly before this. It was a cosmopolitan city that was right on the uh, shoreline of the Mediterranean. It was a prosperous city. It's called Thessalonica after, or I forget, some historic figure's wife. Uh, Thessaloniki, I believe, was what her name was. And in this uh, unique opening, he says in verse 1 again, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only epistle that Paul uses this expression when he's addressing his audience by using the term in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 7, he puts it like this. To all, 1-7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's how he addresses them. In the two books of Corinthians, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. In Galatians, unto the churches of Galatia. In Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, which I call the Trinitarian epistles, he writes to each of them using the same expression, unto the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now to the Thessalonians, and of course Paul wrote 13 epistles, and four of them were written to individuals, the rest of them were written to churches, Philemon, First and Second Timothy and Titus, what you could say were pastoral epistles written to an individual. The rest of the epistles, the nine or ten of them, were written specifically to these individual churches or areas where there were churches like Galatia. So again, why this expression to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, they were a newly formed church and it could be that Paul is trying to give these new believers a sense of tremendous, tremendous security. It's easy for us to bring doubts on ourselves about where our standing is with God and where God is with us. But here's an expression that's telling them that you guys, you folks, are the church of God in the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus says... 
My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My hand, Jesus' hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of what? My Father's hand. So there you have the hand of Christ and the hand of the Father which would give to the audience of people who believe that security that can't be robbed and stolen from you. Do you have that sense of security that you're in the Son's hands and in the hands of the Father in that doubleness? One brother described it this way. He took a penny, he said, this is Jesus and this is you. You are in his hands and you and Jesus are in the Father's hands. It's double locked. That's the kind of security you could say that would define what we have in the gospel. Sometimes a question is raised with communicating about this in an email this morning, our brother and I, uh, about the question of, does a believer have eternal security? Can we lose our salvation? Can you be saved and at some point in the future lose what gift God has given you, that is the gift of eternal life? Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall, and the Greek word is a negative that's an emphatic negative that really means I will never, never, never cause you to perish. I give unto you eternal life, and they shall never, never, never perish. That's a strong, emphatic word, and it should be a consolation to you. And it doesn't, shouldn't be taken advantage of so that you would be licentious and sinful and take advantage of it. It's possible that even some Christians could say, well, I'm eternally secure, so it doesn't matter what I say or do. Something's wrong there. If Jesus is king of your life, if you are in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and know what you've been delivered from, you want to say like the hymn writer, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Lord, I give you my life, my heart, my all. That's how we should respond to the great gospel what security we have in knowing that we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like we're in the cave of Adullam. We are in good hands. And sometimes we don't even know what we have because we base our security and relationship on the Lord on the way we feel. And I don't feel as good every day as I do other days. I think we'll all admit that. Uh, who was I talking to? Someone recently was just saying, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I am. Sometimes I, how can I be sure of that? Sometimes we don't know what we have and we base, on, base that on the way we feel. But also, even as believers, sometimes we don't know what we have. You know, you might not realize, but you might have a lot of money in the bank. You never even checked your bank account, possibly. There was a, uh, you might have heard me give this illustration before, but I think it highlights my point. That is, uh, a, a, a minister was doing a um, marriage, uh, premarital counseling with a couple and eventually married them. He spent a lot of time and work on them. And it's kind of customary that, you know, you might, you know, tip the, give an honorarium to the, to the minister and... Uh, when all was said and done and the gifts were given out by the bride and bridegroom, well, he ended up getting a box and it was a pair of gloves, winter gloves, and it was a fall Christmas, uh, it was a fall uh, marriage uh, that was performed. And, um, you know, he kind of thought, hmm, just a pair of gloves, that seemed kind of like a weak gift, you know. Uh, well, anyway, he tucked them away 
and it was still kind of a little bit lodged in the back of his mind. Boy, that's kind of stingy of them, you know. Um, and I'm not, try- I'm not trying to appeal to anyone that's getting married in this congregation. Like, <laughs> come on, cough it up, will you? No, nothing like that. But anyway, so sure enough, the winter came, and he thought, hell yeah, I got a, pair, got a brand new pair of nice leather gloves. So he went, and he started to put them on, and as he was putting his finger in, he noticed something was stuffed in there, and he pulled it out. It was a $10 bill. Stuck the next finger in, another $10 bill. And he ended up putting his finger in all the different holes, and there was $100. You see, the point is that he, he didn't know what he had. He thought he just had a pair of gloves. And sometimes as believers, too, we can think that we have the bare minimum. But listen to this. Here are some of the things that you have, and you need to value these things. Your name is written in the book of life. The book of life, someday that book's going to be open. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject unto you, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. You know, when you discover this, and maybe you don't realize it, or especially if you're a new believer, and I can recall when I was a new believer and I'm learning about the blood of Jesus and the atoning sacrifice, and I'm like, wow, this is rich. This is deep. This is like a mine with treasures. Your names are in the book of life. Your sins are buried in the sea. God will never look behind and see your sins. They will never, ever be remembered again. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You are a member of the body of Christ joined to Jesus the head. You're a saint set apart, holy in God's sight. You are called. You're called with a heavenly calling. You've been chosen before the foundations of the world. You are the one for whom Christ died. That should cause our heart to like pump out of our chest. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I could give many more examples in the scriptures where we may not realize what we are in Christ Jesus. We're in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you hadn't thought about that. The Lord says, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I and my Father will live in you. Amazing benefits we gain by becoming a child of the living God. Let's read on, verse 2. We give thanks to God always. This is the apostles, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And if you have a problem with me calling those other two as apostles, you can read into the second chapter, and they're all addressed as being apostles. Paul was certainly in a certain category, but others are included in the term apostle with a capital A, if I can put it that way. And here's verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. What value do we place on our prayers? How much do we pray? Are we praying for certain target items that we should be zooming in on? There may be certain things that are going on in your life or someone else's that you can be praying more fervently for. Call on God. Knock on that door of heaven and speak to God like you're speaking to your friend. 
you know, I was on a little bit of a vacation trip, and I, part of that was visiting my family in Florida. I have an unsaved brother. He's getting older, and I'm getting more worried. I've, I've had bits and pieces of the gospel presented to him, mainly over the phone. But this time, I've had a burden that I want to go, and I wanted to say something to him about the Lord, very specifically. I prayed fervently for weeks, and I was praying while I was there. And I was only going to be there three and a half days. Two days solidly go by, and I'm, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I don't want to do it just off the cuff. I didn't want to just bring it up in an awkward way. And, and, I, and I confessed to the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm discouraged. You know, I came here with an intent to bring my brother the gospel, and nothing has happened yet. Well, that same night, there was a birthday party that he and his wife were putting on for someone in their community. It was his 60th birthday, and a, a few people were invited to come to it. And my wife and I were at the table with about a total of, I think, of nine of us or so. And one of the couples, uh, uh, my brother actually said before we ate the food, he says, my brother's minister, he's going to pray for the food. I go, all right, that's a good start. So, uh, of course, you know, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my brother said, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, I said, he said, there's a Jewish couple here. Watch out with this Jesus thing, you know. He was kind of ribbing me, you know, and everybody was kind of, I said, well, Jesus was Jewish, so what's the problem? <laughs> that was my escape, escape from that thing, but... Uh, here again, I'm still hoping and waiting, not necessarily right there, but I didn't want to leave Sarasota, Florida without talking to him. 20 or so minutes later, in the middle of the meal, he said, now Gary's going to tell you how the Lord converted him. Like, hallelujah. (laughs) Talk about answering prayer. And it it was just amazing. And it led to my wife having to step in to tell her conversion. And yes, there was a Jewish couple there. He was a, actually a, a retired professor from Boston University. Um, but they all listened very intensely. And you know, in the next day, my brother and I were sitting by the pool, just casually. We each had a book, and he said to me, again, out of the clear blue, he says, Gary, you know, for some reason I've been praying lately. I said, I've never done that before. I don't know why. He says, I'm praying. It's really like strange. And I said, Tommy, I said, what are you praying? And he says, I'm, I'm well, I, he says, I'm, I'm praying what he only knew was the Our Father. He's actually trying to uh, remember the way he learned it as a child in Albanian. And he was trying to, you know, say it in that way, almost as if it's something holier than the English. I don't know what it was. But um, I said to him, you know, better than that. I says, great that you're you're praying to God. I says, but when you pray, ask God. Ask God to reveal himself to you. I said it twice. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Speak to him like you're speaking to me and say, God, show me, teach me, open my eyes. Pray for my brother Tommy that the Lord would open his heart. I just sent him an invitation, too, to that Jesus movie that we went to some of us last night. I don't know if he took opportunity to it. Not that it was the greatest movie about the gospel, but let's uh, hope that... Anyway, my point was about praying, praying, praying. I'm convicted that I don't pray enough. I'm convicted that I don't pray as fervently as I should and as believing as I should. Because there's so many passages that talks about 
saying it and believing it and trusting God will answer it. And of course, it's according to his will. Well, Paul, with all of his journeys and all of his busyness, he worked with his hands. He presented the gospel constantly. And yet he says, we are praying for you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3, remembering before our God. This is something that would have drawn out praises to God. Praying, praising God, or you could say remembering before our God and Father, your, here are things, your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfast in hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that a pastor would love to see in his people, or we should want to see with one another. Those three ingredients, what? Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Now, that in, that's an interesting express, expression, your work of faith. We always try to contrast works and faith. We're justified by faith alone and Christ alone, right? Not by works at all. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. But here an important description is given describing the life of a believer. That's a work of faith. Let's put it this way. Faith works. If you have a faith that doesn't work, then you don't have faith. That's what's called dead faith. Faith without works is dead. But if you're alive in Christ, works follow you. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, the things that accompany salvation. And Paul is praising God for the work of faith in them. He witnessed it. The labor of love. Labor of love. Labor to love one another. It's not, it's not a casual thing. It's something that needs to be aggressive. Write somebody, call somebody, pray for somebody, put your arm around somebody, put your hand on a shoulder, tell somebody how much you love them or you're praying for them, encourage them. It's a labor. Something we need to put our heart to. We need to think outside of ourselves. If we're going to be like Jesus, he was outside of himself. He didn't think of himself. He thought of others above himself. Paul was a wonderful example of that, and we'll get into that later in the second chapter. And then the last thing is a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain? Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure though the billows roll, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. The steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our plea. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. A steadfast hope, unmovable in Christ Jesus. Now, because of their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus, no wonder Paul could say in the next verse, we know brothers, it could be brothers and sisters, of course, the women are involved in this. We know brothers loved by God that he has that he has chosen you. You are a chosen one. Our sister was wearing on her shirt yesterday, right? The chosen one. 
or a chosen one. We should all have that. A brother that I know, uh, he was a lawyer in Ohio. He had on his license plate, chosen, C-H-O-S-E-N, chosen. We don't like to think about think ourselves as being special. I'm not any more special than anyone else. But in God's eyes, because of Christ in you, you are special. You are special. You are chosen. Chosen. He has chosen you. Just think of that. He selected you so that you would become an elect. And was your election based on you selecting him or him selecting you? If it wasn't for him selecting you, you would have never selected him. The election was determined even before you were born and you didn't know it. Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. How many years did you spend in vanity and pride, knowing not your Lord was crucified? It was meaningless to you. Is it anything to you that pass by, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, if we can apply that to Jesus? We went by the cross. We saw pictures of Calvary and Jesus on a cross, and it meant nothing to us. But when the Lord called you and brought you near, all of a sudden, a vision of Calvary comes before you and say, Wow, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He has chosen you. And then he goes on to say, How? Because another reason why there's assurance that he can call them the chosen ones. Or the King James says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Why? Because our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. (coughs) Our gospel came to you not in word only, or only in word. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, When you receive the word of God which you heard of us, Received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which lives and abides forever. When God is speaking, even through the voice of an individual, it can be said, if any man hear my voice, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 says, if anyone hears my voice, how do we hear his voice? Through the preaching of the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul's assured of their being chosen or elect because of the way in which the gospel came to them. In power and in the Holy Spirit. If you intellectually grasp the gospel, and unfortunately this was the way Charles Finney would present the message of the gospel, it was in a lawyer-like fashion in giving the facts and it was just simply making a mental assent to this truth. And if you mentally assented to it, then bingo, you're saved. In even some of the evangelistic methodologies of today, it's almost very intellectually appealing, and this is all you have to do, and, and you're saved. But look it, when the gospel comes, and comes in power, dunamis, dynamite, then people hear, then they believe, then they understand. We went and saw the Jesus movie last night called The Jesus Revolution. I wish there was more emphasis on the era of the Jesus Revolution that was a part of my individual history beginning back for me in 7071 
when all of a sudden I'm, I'm reading not just a, there was a big article in uh, Newsweek in 1971 called the Jesus Revolution on the front page with a uh, painted picture of Jesus with like a halo around his head. But years before that, I remember in my junior year of high school, there was an article in uh, uh, Newsweek, not Time, but Newsweek, about these Jesus freaks in California that were approaching people in the supermarket parking lot, talking to them about Jesus. And I must say that that triggered something in my mind. I said, what is that all about, talking about Jesus? Well, I don't want to go into my life story during that 70s period when the Jesus, quote, revolution was taking place in America. And I really do believe in spite of a lot of confusion and errant doctrine and whatnot and in faulty kind of gospel presentations and easy believism, the Holy Spirit was working. And it's easy to dismiss it because there were a lot of things that were kind of crazy for sure. Like there have been in a lot of other kinds of Brownsvilles and As, uh, Asbury uh, thing that's been going on lately. I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit is working in miraculous ways independently of the bad doctrine that's out there. And I'm not trying to advocate bad doctrine or trying to ignore it at all in any fashion. But remember, Moses was told at one time to speak to the rock so that the water would come forth. But he lost his temper. And with it, he smacked the rock and he says, must you rebels, must I fetch you water out of this rock? And what happened? Water comes out of the rock. Well, wait a minute, Moses, you disobeyed God. You didn't do it the right way. God overrode that. He still brought forth water. The Holy Spirit moves in ways that I don't know. I don't understand. The wind blows where it lists. You hear the sound thereof. It cannot come where it comes. My brother's saying, I'm starting to pray for some reason. I don't know why. May it be the Holy Spirit of God that's starting to penetrate and move in his life like he did in mine. And it took several years before he ultimately got a hold of me and finalized my journey spiritually and closed it in by giving me a vision of Calvary and understanding that Jesus died as my personal substitute on the cross. And now I can honestly say, Jesus Christ, you are my king. I love you, Lord. You died for me. You gave your life for me. You've changed my life. I'm not what I used to be. How did that happen? The same way it happened to you. The God, by his Holy Spirit, worked in your life. Is someone having the Holy Spirit work in their life today at this service? Are you right with God? Is Jesus your king? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you have hope for heaven? Do you have this steadfast hope? Do you have that work of faith? Do you have that labor of love? Did you hear or are you hearing the gospel that's coming with power? Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, today. What, what's it? February 26, 2023. He's the same today. The gospel of yesterday is the gospel of today. The gospel that God used through George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and Paul and Augustine and all of the saints of all history in the past is the same Lord Jesus Christ we preach in the gospel today. Is the Holy Spirit working in your life? He's the one that draws and brings you. He's the evangelist. We are just, Paul says, we are just deacons. We're ministers. We're servants. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gave the increase. 
To God be the glory. Listen, I'm going to close with this, this amazing hymn. It's titled, Hail Sovereign Love, which first began that scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail matchless free eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who built the skies, I fought with hands uplifted high. Despise the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night, and fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsels ran. Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, saying, This mountain is no hiding place. But on Jesus, God's just vengeance fell, which would have sunk this world to hell. He bore it for a sinful race, a chosen race, and thus became our hiding place. Should sevenfold storms of thunder roll and shake this globe from pole to pole, no thunderbolt shall daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. Can you say amen to that? Is Jesus your hiding place? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Did the gospel, is the gospel, maybe even today coming to you? If I ask you to raise your hands to trust Christ as your Savior, would you do it? I'm not going to ask you. But if you haven't, if you want to, come unto me, all you that labor. Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Trust me with all your heart. And Jesus assures you that all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen to the glory of God. I want to pray for those that may have that lack of assurance and don't have that peace with God, that they are saved, that they are right with him, that they are the chosen ones who have heard and believed the gospel from their heart and know that Jesus died and rose from the dead for their sins. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the message of the gospel. Thank you for opening our hearts and giving us eyes to see And Lord, we pray for anyone in this room, including my brother Tommy back in Florida. Lord, have mercy on him. And anyone here today, Lord, that is sensing the Holy Spirit drawing them, may, oh God, you bring them to an end of themselves and say, Jesus, I truly want you as my Lord and Savior. I'm a sinner convicted by my sins. I'm lost and guilty and hopeless and helpless. And Lord, you're the only one that can do what can be done, and that is saving grace. Lord, have mercy, we pray. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Thank you for our worship this morning, for our testimony of our sister and her labors in Jamaica. We pray for Eveline as well, the brethren there, and many other ministries that we support and many other churches do, and the many brothers and sisters that are sacrificing their time and going forth with the gospel of your grace. Hear our praise, Lord. Watch over us till we come together again as we give you glory, honor, and thanks in Jesus' precious name.